Good afternoon. My name is Carola, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. And I want to just um, do a few things before I get into my story. And one is I really want to recognize uh, how serious this disease is in that we lost a really uh, good friend. He, was, uh, he, he always made me laugh, and he had only been in the program maybe two to three years, I think. And um, we just found out, you know, three weeks ago, he went back out and he died of a massive heart attack. And so I would ask that you keep his family in your prayers today. And that was Jerry. Um, yeah, I just came back from Vulcan and spoke there, so that was kind of interesting. <laughs> because I, I couldn't find out whether they really wanted to hear me speak or tell stories about my brother, Cal. <laughs> so so I asked when I got there I said would everybody in the room put their hands up if they really came here to hear war stories about Cal and everybody put their hand up so, so I know some of you might be interested in those stories too um, before I get started I want to share this joke because I think it's cute and it's funny and I hope nobody takes it as a racial offensive joke because it's not meant to be. And if you have a problem with that, you can beat me up after I leave. <laughs> there was this American and this Japanese and this Newfoundlander sitting naked in a sauna. And all of a sudden they hear this beep, 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 beep. And uh, the American uh, lifts up, well, he doesn't lift up. He looks at his forearm and he punches in buttons and goes, oh, it's just my beeper. Wow, that's very impressive. All of a sudden, there's a ringing noise. And the Japanese takes his hand up and talks in the phone. And he goes, oh, that's, I have a microchip in my hand, and I have a portable cell phone wherever I go. Wow, this Newfoundlander is really impressed with this. So he thinks, well, I've got to look like I'm, you know, up to date and technologically inundated. So off he goes to the toilet, and he sticks up some toilet paper in his butt. And he walks back out and he walks in and he goes, would you look at that? A fax is coming in. (laughs) No offense, anyone from Newfoundland. I'm pretty nervous, and Calvin told me yesterday, when you shake, it's God just trying to shake the honesty out of you. So I thought that was pretty appropriate. To get started, I'd just like to read this little thing, because it kind of gets me focused on where I'm going. So I hope no one's offended by my reading. I am beginning to recognize how powerful the disease of alcoholism is, and how long it can resonate in one's body and wait and wait like a silent shadow for just the right opportunities to surface and act out its symptoms in living color and original pain. No matter how sane you thought you were, no matter how educated you become, no matter how long you avoided involvement with the disease, it is woven into the very fabric of your being. And somewhere along life's journey, the Creator will see fit to decide that you have the strength and requiring the teaching it has to offer. I am an adult child of an alcoholic, and I now live with a partner who is afflicted by the disease. This monologue is written in the spirit of healing 
And it is my hope that by sharing my walk that it will help others to grow in recovery. Uh, (laughs) That there is help if you are willing to admit that you are powerless over addictions and that your life has become unmanageable. It was only at this point that I was able to reach out for help for me. Finally, when I could take no more, I had no strength or desire to leave the alcoholic. I just wanted to kill him. (laughs) But I couldn't cope living with my fears. I asked an AA member to guide me to Al-Anon, and lots of you know him. He's Harold, and I thank God every day that he brought me here. That very day, he called me back with the lady's name and the directions to meet the following day. It took some time before the programming had its effect, but what I did hear from that first meeting was liberating. I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I certainly can't cure it. Al-Anon offered me refuge from the disease, like an oasis among the debris. They began to love me to sanity. They heard my true cry, and they empathized and recognized that I carried the byproducts of the disease. For the first time, I felt that others could understand how I felt, and there was a way to live with the effects. They also helped me to see clearly my insanity, that committee of assholes that everyone probably has had at one time or another. This thought process can change by simply using the tools of AA and Al-Anon have to offer. I see my... The first time I ever spoke was in Fort Assiniboine a couple years, four years, five years ago, and Roy sat right in front of me. And he was right in my line of vision, and I cried the whole way through, and he cried with me, and it was so good. And I see that you're right there, right where I need you, so (laughs) that makes me feel good. I was born on December 30th in Coal Lake, Alberta. And within 24 hours, we were on a plane to the Northwest Territories. My biological father, and and I want you to know that it was my biological father, it's not my father who's raised me since I was six. My biological father was a raving alcoholic, and he was brutal. And he was a prospector, a head chef, and a gambler, and the first five years of my life were warped with a fear so great it threatened the very existence of my life. I learned early in life to deny my own feelings and to do whatever was in my power to maintain some form of cohesiveness. I was bright, I could talk, I was cute, I could do things, and I used that to survive. Our life was a torrent of violence. We hid under beds. We had huge husky dogs that we hid under their legs when he was on a rampage. We lived in a little tar paper shack right downtown in Yellowknife, and it had no heat, and every morning my mom had to heat the water to get my hair off the off the wall so I could get up and get on with my day. And I learned to manipulate my father and I learned that I was powerful, even at the age of four. 
I can remember one time, I don't even know what I did, and I probably hadn't done anything. He was beating me and beating me and beating me. And uh, I didn't cry. Like, I never cried for myself. I always cried for my brothers. And I, I just got off his lap, and I just looked at him, and I said, you know, they're going to come and take you and put you in jail and throw the keys away. And that's what's going to happen to you. And right away he got scared. And I saw that I had power. I had power. So I learned right away that there were things that I could do to protect myself to survive. And my mother was just a little country girl. She was well-educated, but she was very naive. And she knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism. She finally decided to leave the night that my father came home and tried to kill us. There were ducks all across the wall, and we lived in a one-room shack. And he came in with a shotgun, and he just blew those ducks off the wall. And then he looked at every one of us and said, You little bastards are next. And so I think my mom finally got some some form of sanity and was able to escape with us. But that was my first experience of being abandoned. My father abandoned me through his disease. And so I carried that deep down. And I knew that I had to protect myself from that pain. And I buried that pain deep within myself. When we got down south, because we're from Aboriginal ancestry, and my mother was raising us, five of us at the time, we were put in residential school. And more horror stories came from that. I'm sure you've seen television and saw and heard some of the things that have happened to children in those places. Well, it's all true. It's all true. And so again, I was abandoned. I was abandoned by my mother. I was abandoned by my people. And I was put away, and I didn't think that I'd ever get out. And I remember one time my brothers got together in the yard, and they said, we're running away. Calvin and David, we're running away, and you got to stay here. <laughs> i got to stay here with those wicked nuns. And I thought, oh, my God. And I just started crying and crying. And that was the first time that I cried for myself. And, and of course, they got caught because I was crying and I ratted on them. <laughs> so, so they didn't run away. And we finally got out of that horrific place. But I learned more to protect myself again. That I knew that I had to look after myself and be powerful so that no one could hurt me. And then my mother met this wonderful man, and probably lots of you know him, and his name is Chester Cunningham, and he saved our lives. He taught us how to laugh. We were five kids that were totally inundated in fear. We didn't know how to laugh. We didn't know how to play. We just knew how to get out of the way. And so when he came into our lives, he brought sunshine and laughter and love and changed my life. And I, I don't know that if that man hadn't come into our lives that we would be the people that we are today. And so I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful. And as a matter of fact, my cookum is 98 today. She's just this big. <laughs> and I just remember that when, when you're doing the reading on March 2nd. So I thought I was far away from the disease, right? 
I thought I'd never see any of that disease ever again. And I certainly wasn't going to go out with anybody that had the potential to be an alcoholic or a drug addict or any of those things. No way, not me. Two of my brothers are alcoholics, and uh, one is in the program and has been in the program for 22 years, and the other one's still out practicing. And, you know, I, I, I used to think that I wasn't affected by alcoholism all of those years because we were, we were removed from it. I thought I was unscathed. But it wasn't until I got involved with my own alcoholic that I realized the damage was deep and it was there and I had to deal with it. And Creator put that alcoholic in my life so that I had to deal with it. So as a young teenager, I became the caregiver in our family. And um, when my brothers were drinking and drugging and puking and all of those things, I was looking after them. I was turning their heads so they wouldn't choke and die on their vomit. I was driving around and picking them up. And again, I learned that by doing things for others, by always looking after everyone else, I was looked after. I um, I can remember one time we were in the St. Albert Brewing Inn. That was the hot spot to drink. That's where Calvin rode his Harley Davidson right through the bar. He was an insane guy, I'm telling you. And um, there was a big fight, big fight. They were some outer touch, Stony Plain guys, I think. <laughs> and they were going to fight the St. Albert guys and of course Calvin couldn't even hardly walk and neither could Bill or David or any of them and they're going to fight they're going to go they picked the road out in St. Albert and they were all going to go there so of course my duty is to save everybody right so I went out there and I wasn't as fluffy as I am now I only weighed about 80 pounds <laughs> and I got in between these two warring gangs, and I said, get the bleep 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 in your bleep bleeping cars and get the bleep bleep out of here. And you know what? They did. They got in their cars, and they left. And I learned that I was really powerful. <laughs> so life carried on, and, and, and I look at, the, I, I look at my, my professional journey. I got into a profession where I looked after alcoholics. I became the first Aboriginal warden in North America. I looked after a hundred men. I told them when to get up, when to shit, when to eat. You know, I was powerful. <laughs> but Creator had plans for me. And he said, you know what? You may be a good person, but you're not good enough. And you don't know who you are. And you work from all your external place. You gotta go in and find that person. You gotta go in and reclaim that little girl. And so, I met my alcoholic. <laughs> and it wasn't that many years ago that I met him. It's um, been ten years now. And at first I thought I was helping him out of kindness. And he, I had understood that he was in total recovery and in total abstinence. And because I didn't live with the disease anymore, I didn't recognize the signs. And he wasn't in total recovery. <laughs> and he chipped away and he, he was good at hiding it, I'm telling you. And you know, pretty soon, 
I started to believe it when he said the sky is green, the grass is blue, and I got so confused that I couldn't tell reality anymore. It was like I was living in a foreign country and I could understand just a wee bit of the language. And I was getting more and more confused and I realized I was getting sicker and sicker and I didn't know what to do. And we were going to open AA meetings and I thought we were doing all the right things and I was encouraging him and nothing was working. And he seemed to be carrying on and I seemed to be getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And I think it got to the point like I had a, I had a really good job. I gave my job up because I couldn't concentrate anymore. I, I had totally lost my sense of reality. My addict became my obsession. He became my higher power. And I, I, I just got totally obsessed with him and his behavior. And so, of course, um, going to open AA meetings, and I said to one guy, I can't remember saying, do you think maybe I should go to Al-Anon? Oh, no, you don't have to go to Al-Anon. You hang around with us alcoholics. You'll get the program. You'll figure it out. Well, you know what? That Lois was a pretty smart woman. She knew that it was good for the two to come together. It's good. But it's also important that Al-Anon has its own entity and its own meetings because we're dealing from, with the disease from a different place. And we really need to focus on us. And when we go to AA meetings, we tend to focus on our alcoholic. And so I'm really grateful for Lois for recognizing the need to develop Al-Anon. And I'm grateful for AA for coming up with such a program and sharing it with us. And I really like the way Morinville does it. I come from the Morinville group. That's where my, my home group is. And I go to Sandy Beach. So I... I, I really like both of those groups, and they're great people, and they loved and nurtured me to health again. Um, but what I like about Morinville is that once a month we come together, Al-Anon and AA. And it's not, you know, oh, those Al-Anons. They, they actually like us, and <laughs> that's, that's encouraging. I, yesterday when I was in Vulcan, someone said, yeah, well, this is our Al-Anon look. When an Al-Anon speaker comes up, we all go like this. <laughs> so the first thing I did when I got there is I said, okay, everybody in AA, I don't want you looking down here. I want you looking right here. <laughs> so they had to pay attention to me. Hmm. Um, so... I think I, I learned more about the disease than I could have ever learned in a book um, because I had taken education around it. I taught addictions programs. Um, but living with the disease of alcoholism really changes mm, your outlook and that you know that the disease is active even if the alcohol isn't present. Um, it's the isms. It's the obsession of the mind that can really make all of us crazy from both sides of the fence. Um, I, and, and I always wondered, you know, after I got involved with my, my partner, who I love and, and I'm grateful that I've met, um, why would I be attracted to this? Like, why, how could I dance so close to the fire? I knew better, right? And I think the best explanation, because you're not supposed to analyze, was uh, from a sister in Al-Anon, and she said, 
Well, we carry the rocks for the holes in their head. (laughs) That makes perfect sense to me. When I came into the program, I, like I said, I, I, I was a, a chronic mess. I really was. I, I, I had tried going to therapy. I had tried talking. I, I tried everything to get well because I knew something was really wrong with me. And, and that first time that I went in and, and sat around with these women, I thought they were absolutely nuts. Like they were smiling and they were saying things like, oh, I'm grateful for the alcoholic. And, oh, I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. And I, I'm thinking, why are you grateful to be married to such an asshole? Have you lost your gourd? You can't be serious. So I was so angry. I was really angry at these women for loving their alcoholics because I love my alcoholic too, but I didn't know what to do about it. I wanted to get away from that disease. And they said, well, you got to start looking at yourself and you got to start doing that work. And you got to start using those steps that AA shares with us. And that first step wasn't hard at all because my life was unmanageable. I'd lost my job. I'd emotionally abandoned my own children. I'd, uh, I was crazy. I couldn't focus on anything. So I knew that my life was unmanageable. And step two, I have always had a wonderful connection with my higher power. So that wasn't hard for me to believe that he could restore me to sanity. Now, step three was a little bit tougher. Because step three meant that I had to turn myself over to God. And you know, all through my life, I could turn everyone else over. (laughs) I could turn over that poor suffering alcoholic. I could turn over all those men incarcerated with screwed up lives. I could turn over my family. I could turn over my children. But I didn't trust anybody with me. Not with my feelings. Not with my abandonment issues. I wasn't going there. And so I had to go further down into the disease. And my alcoholic had to leave me. Because I was starting to get well, he got really nervous and he took off. He said, holy shit, she's not responding to all of this. And she's figured out the sky is really blue. I'm out of here. And he left me. And I hit my bottom. I looked for that semi. I prayed for that semi. I wanted to run into it. I couldn't see the friggin' sun. So I had to do step three. There was no one else I could trust. I had to come to that place and literally lay and ask God to take me into his arms and hope like hell he didn't lose my file and he wasn't too busy. (laughs) So step three was a really hard one for me. Step four, that was okay. I could do that. I made lots of lists. I had thousands of pages. (laughs) But step five, I had a real serious problem with. And that goes back to residential school. Because at 6.30 in the morning... I was up and out of bed, and guess what I had to do? 
Well, we had to go see the priest and tell confession. And that's telling another living human being the exact nature of your wrongs. And I had to lie. I had to lie every morning about how bad I was. So I was not doing step five, excuse me. God already knew that I had to lie to him every morning when I was a child. I wasn't about to go tell another living human being that could give a shit about it. So I did part of step five. And you know, there's a reason they say you have to do their steps in their entirety. Because I carried along and I got through step six. And I got through step seven. And I, I, I'm, I did my step eight. And I'm on step nine. And I've been on step nine for over a year and a half. And I couldn't figure out how come I couldn't get through step nine. And I know I had huge amounts of guilt. And I go, well, I told you that, God. I told you that. What's, what's getting in the way here? Why can't I sit down and make amends? And I looked at the steps and I went, oh, I didn't do part of step five. So I phoned up my sponsor, and she's a kick-ass kind of girl, if anybody knows Barb. And um, I went and talked to her, and I turned it over. I did those things that I couldn't do. And when I did that, I realized that doing step nine is going to be a whole lot easier because I have huge, huge amounts of guilt, even though it was only maybe for three years that I got really bad. During those three years, because I was so close to my daughters, I totally abandoned them emotionally. I wasn't there for them. And they were used to having a mom that was there for them. They were used to having a mom that did lots of stuff with them, always had time to talk to them, always was interested in their lives. And when that disease came into my life, I had no time for anybody but running after that alcoholic. And so I had huge amounts of guilt and I needed to apologize to my daughters but after going back and doing step five I realized that it's not important to do it right today I need to do it when I know that the time is right that I let go a lot of my guilt when I sat down and redid step five and I'm okay now and I know when it'll be right when I can sit down with my daughters and talk about how I feel because I know that I live good now and I know that part of step nine is just living right just living and living those steps and and being a good person being kind and being honest and and sharing so that's where I'm at and I'm I'm at step nine so I can't talk anymore about any of those steps although I think I did step 10 when I first came in I never ever had a problem for apologizing for my behavior but step nine is different than that. And um, I, I did wrestle with that. But I'm running out of things to say. <laughs> so um, I just want to say that um, thank you for listening to me and um, on my way to Peace River. And I wish the next speaker lots of luck. And I wish everyone another 24 hours. Let's chill. <laughs>